Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Here we are tonight at the Easter Vigil, which is one of the most significant and sacred nights of the church year. On Maundy Thursday, we commemorated the Lord's Supper, the institution of the Holy Eucharist, We reflected on the betrayal of our Lord by Judas Iscariot into the hands of the Jewish authorities. And so we stripped our altar and we set up an altar of repose in the back of the church where their reserved sacrament was processed. Yesterday, for Good Friday, we gathered as we walked the stations of the cross, the the footpath of our Lord to his cross. Then we gathered again that e- yesterday evening to intercede for the church and the world at the feet of his cross, venerating that beautiful image of the crucified Lord as we meditated on his sacrifice for us. We read the reproaches of God to his people, reflecting on his faithfulness throughout salvation history and our propensity towards unfaithfulness. And finally, we communed using the pre-sanctified hosts, that we had reserved on the altar of repose, a reminder of God's ever-present mercy towards us. Holy Week is a week of two reversals. The first occurred on Maundy Thursday. You may remember last week at Palm Sunday, we greeted our Lord like the crowds greeted him when he entered Jerusalem with great celebration, with songs of praise, with palm branches, with clothes, But of course, he was betrayed on Maundy Thursday. Quite a reversal. But tonight, we inaugurate the second reversal of the week, which is where we begin to now celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. Liturgically, this is clear from the change from purple at the beginning of the service to white as the Mass begins. Death has been trampled by death. Hell has been harrowed. Christ is risen, and so tonight we meditate on what our Savior has accomplished for us. To that end, our epistle passage this evening by St. Peter begins with an important exhortation. For it is better, he says, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. It's better for us to be persecuted for the sake of righteousness than to be persecuted by committing an injustice or acting unrighteously. This is how we should behave because it was the standard set by our Lord. Earlier in 1 Peter 2, verse 23, the apostle describes the passion of our Lord, saying, "...who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not." but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. This imagery is clearly drawing from the prophet Isaiah, who has a mysterious character called the suffering servant throughout his book. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. As fallen creatures, all of us, every human being, owes God a double debt. We already owed God all that we are and all that we do simply based on the fact that he created us because we cannot exist without him. 
but also we sinned. And our sin compounds a debt that already included everything. We, as creatures, acted against our Creator. The implication is that there is no just way for us on our own to repair the relationship between us and God. But this is the profound beauty of the gospel. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Christ is fully God and fully man. There is no stain of sin in him. In his incarnation, he exemplified perfect justice and perfect goodness. But when those of us who are trapped in darkness encounter the light of divinity, we often shrink away from it or worse, lash out in violence to extinguish it. That's what happened to our Lord over the past few days. When God became flesh and tabernacled among us, The world that was made by him knew him not. And so the perfect God-man endured persecution and death for the sake of righteousness. Righteous deeds deserve to be rewarded, do they not? But what do you give the man who is perfect and has everything? The Father bestows infinite merit on the Son, but it goes to those of us who are in him. To those of us who are sons and daughters of God, who are heirs in heaven. In John 15, the image used to describe our relationship to Christ is that of fruit on the vine. Just as fruit receives the nutrients it requires to survive from the vine on which they grow, so those of us who are in Christ through baptism are enlivened through the merits won by Christ our Lord. By his death, then. Christ reveals to us God's love for the whole world. Many church fathers and even the book of common prayer pick up on the significance of the fact that in being crucified, Christ died with his arms outstretched on the hard wood of the cross. And they interpret this as Christ beckoning all to come within his loving embrace. But there's another way he demonstrates his love for us, and it can be found in the answer to the question, What was Jesus' soul doing for the time his body was dead? In the Apostles' Creed, we profess that he was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. It's this aspect of the story that St. Peter focuses on in verse 19 of our reading this evening. He went and preached unto the spirits in prison. St. Cyril of Alexandria demonstrates that scene for us dramatically. In order to deliver all those who would believe, Christ taught those who were alive on earth at the time of his incarnation. And these others acknowledged him when he appeared to them in the lower regions, and thus they too benefited from his coming. Going in his soul, he preached to those who were in hell, appearing to them as one soul to other souls. When the gatekeepers of hell saw him, they fled. The bronze gates were opened and iron chains were undone. And the only begotten Son shouted with authority to the suffering souls, according to the word of the new covenant, saying to those in chains, Come out, and to those in darkness, be enlightened. This is a beautiful picture of what has come to be known 
as the harrowing of hell. In many artistic depictions of it, a multitude is led out of hell by Christ, usually depicted as holding hands with Adam and Eve. How much does God love humanity? Enough to die for us. Enough to descend to the dead to save souls. And so how do we receive these merits won by Christ? How are we unified to him? The answer is given to us by the scriptures, and that answer is holy baptism. To help us better understand, St. Peter turns to the Old Testament story of the Noahic flood. God told Noah about the impending flood and instructed him to build an ark. Noah's contemporaries had the long duration of time while the ark was being built to get on board, to be saved, reflecting the patience of God. One writer has described God's patience by saying he's like the French. It takes him hundreds of years to, do, to get angry and even longer to do something about it. It's also important to remember how wicked the people were in the antediluvian world, so much so that the author of Genesis tells us that God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. But this invitation to safety, this invitation to the ark, This invitation to baptism is open to all. Andreas, a 7th century monk, points out the parallel between the Noahic flood and baptism in that the waters of the flood punished evil while the good were saved through the ark. Baptism, likewise, puts to death our old man and raises us in newness of life. Baptism translates us into the ark, and the ark is Christ. The ark is his church, his body. In baptism, we are brought into the church. We are made members of his body. And so St. Peter tells us that baptism doth also now save us. Baptism is not just a symbol for something else that saves us. It's not just a profession of faith that we make. Water baptism is not different from some sort of separate internal or spiritual baptism, as some have called it. There is one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and that baptism saves us by bringing us into Christ, not because it removes dirt from our bodies, but sin from our souls, bestowing in us a good conscience towards God. Christ is the conqueror, who on this day has won victory over the principalities. Christ is the conqueror, who on this day has despoiled Satan, Christ is the conqueror who on this day has robbed death. Christ is the conqueror who on this day has overcome the power of sin. To the victor goes the spoils. The victory brings great exaltation. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. St. Peter tells us Christ is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. This allows us to join St. Paul's great taunt of death in 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Thanks be to God, which gaveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is risen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. 
Amen.